It's back, the Reckless Renewables Rally. Make a statement where it truly counts, this time in Canberra. Join us on the Parliament House lawn at 10am on Tuesday, February 6th, the first session of Parliament for 2024. People from across the country, coastal and regional areas are rallying for the government to stop the reckless rollout of environmentally harmful, unreliable and costly so-called renewable projects. These include wind, solar and high voltage transmission line projects. Listen to speakers representing the federal and state governments, community organisations and environmentalists, all accompanied by great music and entertainment. Bring your flags, banners, signs and most importantly, your voice and ears to support rural and regional Australia. Together, let's ensure that the Minister for Climate Change and Energy, Chris Bowen, and the Australian Government take responsibility and stop the risks and costs associated with their reckless and obsessive rush to adopt these so-called renewable energy projects. What's on the line is Australia's national interests, our economy, our security and the well-being of our environment both now and into the future. Join us in Canberra. Together, we can make a difference. Not clean, not green, not net zero. Our message is very, very simple. We want to educate the kids, not indoctrinate them. I think this election should be the pandemic election. Yeah! She doesn't want these projects in her backyard, in Moringa. She wants them in yours. What's wrong with Australia today? For me, it's leadership. It's just a lack of leadership. She wants them on your farm, man. I just want to ask what her vaccine mandates achieved. Apart from putting... Apart from putting good people out of work... We should be energy independent here in Australia. We've got everything. Have you confirmed that you are negative before attending tonight if you are unvaccinated? You only have one vote, but it's very powerful. Together, we will prevail. Hi everyone, welcome to Commanding the Narrative. My name is Stephen Tripp. Uh, I can see everyone joining us live on YouTube, Rumble and Facebook. A very warm welcome to all of you and for people watching after the live recording, if you can't catch us today, uh, you can catch up, us up to date on those platforms as well. Rumble is recommended unless you're in France. I found out from our guests that Rumble is banned in France, unfortunately. But uh, uh at the start of today's episode, you would have seen the the rally coming up, the Reckless Renewables Rally. Now that is coming up on February 6th down in Canberra at Parliament House. It is a Tuesday, so if you're close to Canberra, please, if you can make the effort to get down there, uh, we need to support our farmers. Some of these farmers are facing these uh, high-voltage transmission lines going through their properties, uh, solar uh panels being established in their properties and also wind farms. Uh, people in uh, Port Stephens and in the Illawarra are facing offshore wind farms and even up in the far north Queensland, uh, very sensitive biodiverse corridors are being uh, bulldozed to the ground to create pathways for these uh, wind farms and uh, transmission lines. So if you can make it, it would be uh, a big effort. 
I know, but please do so. Uh, it is a very important event, a uh, lot of notable speakers. It is the first day of Parliament in Australia for 2024, so they're trying to make a big statement. If you could support them, it would be much appreciated. And if you want to support us, you can head to buy me a coffee uh, and support us uh, in any amount you choose. The option is there. Uh, it's just a way for you to say uh, thank you or just show your support for us. So if you can do that, I know uh, everyone is facing a uh, cost of living pressures at the moment, uh, but the option is there if you do choose so. Uh, I'm very excited today. Uh, we have a guest from the United Kingdom, and uh, I haven't had the chance to speak about the United Kingdom so far. This will be my first opportunity, and in doing the research for this episode, uh, it's really hit me that there's a lot of overlap in the uh, Australian uh, UK relationship and also some of the issues that we're facing here in Australia and also the issues that they're facing in the UK. But uh, I'll introduce our guest now. His name is Lee Evans. Lee is the chairman and founder of factsforeu.org, the most prolific researcher and publisher of Brexit facts in the world for the last eight years. He's also chairman of CIB UK, the campaign for an independent Britain. Now, CIB UK is a non-party political campaigning organisation of people from all walks of life. It's the UK's longest running membership organisation for freedom, democracy and independence, founded in 1969. Its patrons include senior politicians and members of the House of Lords. For the last 55 years, the CIB UK has made a significant contribution in campaigning on issues important to the majority of the UK's population and in securing the UK's exit from the European Union. Outside of politics, Lee was a founder and director of several successful companies and was non-executive non -executive director of many others, including a PLC. He continues to be active in business as a company director. I really don't know how he finds the time, but Lee has also been a life fellow of the RSA since 1993, following his nomination by council. He was formerly vice chairman of the Brexit Coalition and is currently vice chairman of a city think tank, as well as being chairman of the China Analysis Group. He speaks privately every week to senior MPs and peers about all issues relating to the UK's place in the world, and hopefully we'll speak to him on those issues as well. Now, finally, with his surviving family being Australian from Brisbane to Melbourne, he's a firm believer in restoring the importance of the traditional values which connect our two great countries. Very warm welcome to you, Lee. Welcome to Commanding the Narrative. Thank you, Stephen, for the uh, the introduction, uh, which I'm, I'm totally undeserved of. But anyway, thank you. And uh, can I just say hi to all of our Australian friends? Yes, and, and I believe that there's some people watching from the UK, so welcome as well. Now, CIB UK was founded in 1969. That is uh, four years before the United Kingdom joined, which was back then the European communities. It later became the European Union. What were the what were the issues at the time that dominated the reason why CIB UK was founded? What were the concerns? Well, the concerns were pretty much what they've been uh, ever since, which was that uh, we were joining a block uh, that was supposed to be an economic uh, trading block. Uh, but at the time, my predecessors uh, in the organization suspected otherwise. And 
we now know that they were right because uh, we now have released cabinet papers uh, going back to those days, uh, more than 50 years ago, which proved for a fact that the then Prime Minister, Edward Heath, who took us in to what was then the economic community, the EEC, European Economic Community, lied to the public. And uh, we, we now know that for a fact, and I, I tip my hat to my predecessors who saw that coming. How did you get involved? Uh, I guess I was kind of dragged into it, really. I, I'm a businessman by, by profession. But um, it just became so clear back in 2015 when it looked like we would have a referendum that people had to step up to the plate. And so I did and founded Facts for EU back then. And then um, I was asked to chair CIB UK uh, at the beginning of last year and was happy to do so. Now, CIB UK and factsforeu.org gives you the opportunity to speak to many members of parliament and notable people. Uh, you have reached out to some of them and got some comments do you want to uh, read off the comments uh, that you source from? I mean, some of these are very notable people. Yeah. Um, uh, talking to Australia, uh, to your Australian audience, it's interesting. I, I've been chatting with a few of the politicians, senior politicians, in the last few days, knowing this was coming up, and I thought I'd float by them. Did they want to say anything to the Australian people? And the extraordinary thing is... Every single one of them said yes, um, they did. And I'll, I'll just read off uh, a few of those, if I may, Stephen. Yep. Uh, so the first one is from the former Secretary of State, the Right Honourable Sir John Redwood MP. And he says, a big win from Brexit has been letting the UK develop much closer links and more trade with Australia. We can develop freer trade and have trailblazed with defence and intelligence collaboration. And I, I, I think that final point, by the way, is, is, is quite important, and we, we may return to it. Um, so it's about trade, and it's also about uh, uh, defence and intelligence uh, collaboration. Uh, we then got um, uh, the former Brexit minister, hmm. The Right Honourable David Jones MP, a uh, lovely man, he says, Australia and the UK have long established shared values. The trade agreement, that's the UK-Australia uh, trade, trade agreement, and AUKUS, which is the submarine deal, are hugely positive and will help our two nations to spread those values across the world just at a time when other less liberal messages are being disseminated by malign international actors. Together, we will continue to be a powerful force for good. Mm. So that's from um, uh, the Right Honourable David Jones MP, very senior MP. He's uh, Deputy Chairman of uh, the European Research Group in Parliament. And um, just looking at the, these two gentlemen... Uh, they've been in Parliament a very long time and they've both been involved with Brexit all the way uh, from when you basically started. Is that right? The early uh, people that pushed back against Britain being yeah. in the EU? 
Definitely. And, uh, and these are stalwarts. Uh, we had a, a recent vote in Parliament, just to give you uh, and your audience an example, about our Rwanda plan uh, in trying to stop the illegal boat migrants, something that Australians know all about from the Tony Abbott era. Hmm. Um, and uh, only 11 MPs stood up and were counted and voted against uh, the, the bill because it was watered down so heavily. And amongst them were Sir John Redwood and David Jones. So yes. I, I doff my, my cap to them um, because they were uh, two of only 11 MPs that actually voted against the government on it, and quite right too, in my view. So, so men of principle and conviction. Oh, these are conviction politicians, without a shadow of a doubt, something that we could do with a lot more of. And I guess in Australia, you would probably go along with that uh, yes. in, in our own parliament. Yes, well, we can speak about that coming up because that, that, is, that is a big issue and uh, that's something that I've noticed between our two countries and elsewhere in the world is the quality of our elected representatives. But that will, I'll, I'll bring that up a little bit later. But you have one more. Uh, I do. Mm. Yeah. Um, uh, just so that the House of Lords is, is not doesn't go unrepresented. Um, I was talking to Catherine, uh, the Baroness Mayor, CBE, mm. uh, a lovely, lovely lady. And uh, she wanted to pass this on to your uh, Australian viewers and listeners. She said, this historic gold standard trade agreement will bring our countries ever closer together. It will boost trade, create new jobs, and facilitate the movement of qualified professionals between Australia and the United Kingdom. It will also reduce costs for exporters and importers by eliminating most tariffs. Once again, this agreement highlights the advantages of our being an independent and sovereign nation. And I, I guess that's a topic that, uh, Stephen, you're, you're going to touch on um, yes. shortly. I look forward to raising glasses of Australian wines to celebrate this major achievement. Here, here. That's, that's amazing. And thank you for doing that because uh, – I think it's very important for our two nations to uh, have a very good relationship. Obviously, uh, we've had a, a strong relationship for a long time, and a lot of uh, you know a lot of the culture that we have here comes from Britain. So uh, we need to maintain those ties. So uh, it's uh, you know I can't thank you enough for reaching out to those notable people and politicians uh, and to and to get comments from them. So thank you. No, I mean, you know, they were delighted to do it and uh, they, they wanted to send these messages to the Australian people. You've given us a platform to do it, so I thank you for that. Now, the uh, speaking of a platform, the uh, initial reason why we were going to do this interview was to promote a book and it's also, it's, it's actually the Baroness's husband, uh, Sir Christopher Mayer. Uh, he's, uh, uh, yep, that's the one there, Survivors. Uh, this is something that you were very passionate about, um, and you you put the call out to uh, to promote it. And I've 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 jumped on that call. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about it? What what is this book from uh, the late uh, Christopher Mayer? Yeah, I mean, first of all, I say I I, I knew him. Um, I was very fortunate to know him, 
um, quite an extraordinary man, actually. He rose to uh, the very top of the Foreign Office uh, Diplomatic Service, uh, the top position being the UK's ambassador to the US in Washington, D.C. And he was a very successful uh, diplomat out there. Hmm. Um, sadly, uh, just over 18 months ago, his heart gave out, um, which was all of a sudden unexpected and a, a, a tragic loss to, uh, to an awful lot of people, obviously his family, but also friends and, and colleagues. Um, but uh, shortly before he, uh, he died, he completed a manuscript for a book called Survivors, which I would very much recommend to, to anyone. It's a riveting good read. Um, and uh, I'll, I'll just find my notes. I'll, I'll, I'll quote you. There you go. You put it up there. Yeah. So that, that, I'll just let everyone know you can go to Amazon and just put in Survivors uh, and you'll find it there. So you can purchase this book through Amazon. And uh, by the looks of it, it sounds like a very intriguing uh, tale, a little bit of uh, truth, a little bit of uh, fiction, uh, but uh, an interesting story nonetheless. Yeah, absolutely. What he did was he took his wife's family's um, story which is absolutely fascinating. So that's all factual. And he then interwove that with you know, some fictional characters to make it, a, uh, frankly, a riveting good read. Um, and uh, to my mind, I mean, he was always a great communicator, Christopher. And he's used his talents in, in this book. His wife, uh, Catherine, the Baroness Mayor, who is uh, uh, renowned in her own right, by the way, in the House of Lords, uh, she managed to finish it off and get it published. And she asked us if we could uh, help with getting it promoted, uh, because these days publishers don't do the promotion. Uh, they, hmm. they print it, basically. Uh, and so we're, we took on responsibility for that. And I just thought that your audience uh, over there might find it interesting. Uh, can I just read you a quick summary that, um, yeah. that we wrote? Sure, go for um, it. Okay. Uh, Survivors is an historical drama illustrating a period of history still little known in the West, and I, I think that includes Australia, which covers events from the Russian Revolution to World War II. It's an extraordinary saga worthy of being made into a Hollywood movie. I wrote that bit. Chronicling <laughs> uh, these events, and with the added bonus of inter interweaving the real-life story of Baroness Mayer's own family. Lo loosely based on her mother's life, the story begins uh, the day her mother was born in March 1917 with a toppling 1,100 years of imperial rule in the world's largest nation, Russia. On a wintry day in St. Petersburg, Katia, the Countess Ekaterina Polkonina, apologies for my pronunciation, hmm. gives birth to a baby girl. But outside the cloistered confines of the Polkonin family palace, the Russian Revolution stalks the streets. All too soon, Katia's aristocratic world crumbles around her. With her husband, Andrei, away at the front, 
she must learn to adapt and protect herself and her two young daughters. As the tumult in Russia spills onto the global stage, the Balkanin family find themselves adrift in a changing world, a world where old ways, old rules, old loves fall away in the face of new dangers, new passions and courage. This sweeping family saga follows Katia and her family's perilous journey across the world. This is the bit that I thought might interest Australian viewers. It takes us across Siberia and then details how escaping capture and uh, execution by the Bolsheviks, they finally reached Manchuria in 1920, only to find themselves caught up in the power struggle between Chinese warlords, on the one hand, uh, in the Chinese Civil War, and then the Japanese invasions. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. Uh, the family was then forced to flee again, first to Peking and then to Shanghai. By the time Japan fully entered World War II, Baroness Mayer's mother had had to move to Hanoi uh, in Vietnam and finally to Saigon, where finally she found love and security. So there you go. It's, I think it's a great read. Um, it's written by a lovely man, and uh, it's only about 25 quid. I don't know what that is in Australian. But in <laughs> well, they look like such a lovely couple as well. I mean, uh, uh, that's the pity of life that it is final. But, uh, you know, looking at, looking at the photos that you've, you've posted on your website, they were such a, a lovely, uh, good-natured, by the looks of it, couple. They uh, absolutely, uh, uh, I can tell you, uh, I, I got on very well with Christopher and uh, to this day, uh, I, I love Catherine DeBitz. Uh, she's great. She's also doing a lot of work for young people in Parliament, uh, something that is quite close to my heart too. Yeah, that's excellent. So I guess we should, uh, well, finally just encourage everyone to, to buy the book and, and to jump onto Amazon. But uh, going back to the messages from the two MPs and the Baroness, there was a big focus on trade. Now, uh, we were even hearing the arguments uh, here in Australia when Brexit was happening. They've died down since that, uh, you know, the, the uh, United Kingdom was forced into trading with the European Union countries and that excluded countries elsewhere like Australia. And I, I liken it to uh, the image I have in my head is almost like a school where the UK was going to the Commonwealth school and mixing with all the Commonwealth kids and then they decided, oh, well, there's this school, it's, uh, it's close to home, the European school. Uh, maybe we should join that. And they've, they've gone in there and the first thing that the European headmaster has said, you can't mix with those uh, Commonwealth countries anymore. You, you need to just mix with the, uh, your European uh, peers. But what I want to do, I want to go back all the way to 1973 when this first happened, when, when the UK first joined, as I said, it was known then as the European communities. How did this affect the relationship uh, with the UK and Australia? Yeah, I think I think that's a key question, Stephen. Actually, um, uh, it it affected it drastically. Uh, the trade between our two countries uh, uh, changed dramatically almost overnight. Uh, Australia had always been uh, a great trader with the UK. We were delighted to buy your products and. All of a sudden, we couldn't. 
And I remember, I remember my mother, uh, my late mother, talking about this. And she was anguished over uh, the way that Australians were, were cut off from the UK market. She felt it grossly unfair. Uh, I, I recall as a small boy um, hearing her talk about this. And uh, sadly, uh, I feel we, we let our Antipodean cousins down. So it wasn't just Australia, it was New Zealand as well, um, and other Commonwealth countries. And all of a sudden, you know, massive tariffs were imposed and we had to start uh, thinking about buying from the so-called single market, although it didn't quite exist at that particular moment, but it was the nascent single market. So I, I deeply regret it. I, I think there are still maybe some of your older listeners that may feel aggrieved about it. I can only apologize on behalf of the United Kingdom, but say, guess what? We're back and we're backing you. But of course, now the Remainers are using it against you by saying, well, if we have this influx of Australian produce, especially with farming, it's going to affect uh, British farmers. What do you have to say about that? Yeah, um, we, we have a farming lobby uh, in the UK, just like you do in Australia. Uh, no different. The farming <laughs> lobby are, are very powerful. Uh, they, they, the ones that run it, um, in the National Farmers Union are the very rich farmers. They're not the ordinary, everyday farmers. And uh, they have their own views, which we don't particularly agree with. Uh, and essentially, they're protectionist. Unfortunately, <laughs> we have a very weak government that is susceptible to this kind of lobbying. Uh, my view, uh, and that of my teams and that of uh, some of the senior politicians that I talk to is that uh, the deal with Australia uh, and letting in produce from Australian farmers and come to that manufacturers is a good deal because it gives consumers more choice and it lowers prices. And uh, the UK's farmers and producers have to compete on the world stage. Uh, so we're not in favour of, of tariffs and quotas. What we have with Australia is a deal where, unfortunately, it's going to take 15 years, believe it or not, for all of the quotas to be reduced to zero. So this will be a gradual process. Uh, Personally, uh, I would have done it within 12 months to give our farmers a chance to, to respond. Um, I think 12 months would have been a reasonable period. But unfortunately, Parliament's agreed to 15 years under the Rishi Sunak government. But uh, from the information that you've sent me about this, it's a lopsided deal because Australia has removed their tariffs and uh, there's no tariffs at all. But as you said, on the other side of the equation, it could take 15 years for the tariffs to be removed. Why, why do you think that's happened? Why do you think Australia has been willing to remove all of its tariffs uh, and, and go into this free trade agreement with the UK, but it hasn't really been recipro reciprocated in the same way on the other side? Um, because we have a useless government. <laughs> well, so do we. <laughs> 
Well, yes, you, you do. But uh, we are supposed to have a Conservative government uh, which is supposed to believe in, uh, in trade, uh, in low state, low tax, etc. Uh, but one of the things that I think that the United Kingdom has in common with Australia and with other countries is we're all seeing uh, the public thinking one thing and our, our politicians and our governments thinking something else. That is, uh, is a major problem. Uh, I think, and we'll probably come on to this, Stephen, but we, we may be heading for a bit of a shift in UK politics uh, coming up very shortly. Uh, but you are absolutely right. Australia, uh, I think, has done the right thing, despite your government. And it's not that I approve of your government, uh, mm. but despite it, uh, there's, uh, there's been a willingness to open up Australia to, uh, to trade. And sadly, in the UK, we're, we're behind you. Before we before we move on to as as you were saying, there's a problem with the with the government at the moment. It's meant to be a conservative government. We will talk about that, but I want to give some historical context for maybe some Australians who don't know the true or, or the real history of Brexit. Now, back in uh, as we mentioned, January first, nineteen seventy three, the UK uh, joined the European communities uh, later the EU. Now. Some people might not know, on June 5th, 1975, there was a referendum held by the Labor government to basically essentially ask the same question that Brexit did. Now, the Remainers won that 67.23%. Uh, so uh, it took quite some time for people to sour on the idea of the UK being within the European Union, but that did happen on June 23, uh, 2016. Uh, the bref Brexit referendum happened and Leave won 51% uh, of, of the primary vote or almost 52%. Interestingly, the, the whole country uh, voted to leave except for London, uh, Northern Ireland and also Scotland. Uh, we might touch on Scotland a little bit later. But despite the vote, it took four years before uh, the UK left Brexit. That happened on January 31st, 2020. I guess the question I want to ask you now is Brexit completely done? Is there things that still remain or things that you would say that you would like to see happen? Uh, what, what is the situation with Brexit? Yeah, um, uh, that, it's another good question. Uh, you're quite right. We went through years of torment after the British people had expressed their opinion in the largest democratic vote in UK history. And that's very important to, to tell your Australian viewers that. And one thing I didn't mention was that the next uh, general election was basically run on the Brexit issue. That happened in 2019, and that's where the Conservatives won overwhelmingly with Boris Johnson heading the ticket. Yeah, uh, he secured an 80-seat majority uh, with the main slogan being Get Brexit Done. Now, the reason for that was because uh, following the referendum, our Prime Minister, our then Prime Minister, now our Foreign Secretary, quite extraordinarily in, in many people's view, he's now um, Foreign Secretary Lord, as he now is, David Cameron, who some of your 
uh, your viewers and listeners might might have heard of. Uh, he resigned uh, the following day, even though he said that if the vote went against him, he would stay. He resigned the next day. What we then had was um, a uh, effectively a Remainer rejoiner government led by a woman called Theresa May. Um, one of the most disastrous periods of, of government in British history. And we went through uh, an appalling episode in Parliament with essentially Remainer rejoiner MPs refusing to accept the result, campaigning for a second public vote as if we hadn't had a public vote. And the amazing thing is that the current leader of the Labour Party in the UK, Sakia Starmer, was at the forefront of, of leading the uh, campaign for this so-called public vote. Um, we then came to 2019, when uh, there, there finally was uh, another general election, which, as you rightly said, Boris Johnson won under the slogan, Get Brexit Done. And we all sat back and uh, felt fairly relaxed that things were going to happen. Sadly, we're still in the same state today where we, uh, we have major issues to deal with. The most important probably is that we left Northern, Northern Ireland behind. So Northern Ireland is still in the EU single market. It's causing massive problems over there. Their, 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 uh, their own devolved government hasn't sat for the last two years as a result of it and doesn't look like sitting anytime soon. Uh, the Rishi Sunak government agreed something called the Windsor Framework with the EU, which was supposed to resolve all of this, and it hasn't. Uh, so uh, are there still issues? Yes. Are there benefits? Oh, yes, most definitely. Well, we're facing a similar thing here. We just had a referendum on the voice to parliament. And unlike your prime minister, our prime minister didn't resign after the vote, even though it went against him. But now, even though the vote only happened in October, uh, the state governments are moving ahead with their own versions of these uh, voice to parliament. So despite 60% uh, despite or more of the country voting against this, they're proceeding with it. So it's like the politicians don't really care. There's an, it's almost as if there's an, another agenda at play and they just have to push this stuff through. Yeah. I, I, you see, I, I think that there are parallels between Australia and the UK on so many different things. Hmm. We're, we're, we're suffering the, main, uh, the, the, the same kind, kinds of issues. You've got Mayor Sadiq Khan in London, uh, which as everyone knows, is one of the world's major international cities who's doing his own thing uh, regardless of what the people think. Uh, and unfortunately, there isn't really a candidate that is, uh, is going to beat him in the next election. Uh, we have this same issue, uh, the lack of democratic accountability uh, the lack of conviction politicians who listen 
to their electorates and do what their electorates want. And from over here, where I sit, I, I kind of sense the same thing going on in, in Australia, that a lot of your politicians are simply not listening. I would agree because when I ran in the uh, 2022 federal election here, I was talking about that. I, I was saying, I was trying to remind people, the government doesn't tell you what to do. They're meant to represent you and each uh, member of parliament is meant to uh, represent their electorate. They're not rep meant to represent international bodies. They're not meant to represent their party and the party uh, structure. They're meant to represent the, uh, the needs and wants of their electorate. But we will get to that. I've got that lined up. We can have a discussion on that. But before we move on from Brexit, I want to play devil's advocate because I do do that from time to time. Are there any advantages of the United Kingdom being within the European Union? No. <laughs> Would you like me to elaborate on that answer? Well, it's a good answer. Uh, if you do want to elaborate, you, you can. Yeah. Uh, the first thing is uh, we believe, my teams believe, in uh, sovereignty and independent nation states and that those states be allowed to do what they want according to the wishes of their electorate. Uh, we have uh, um, what we call representative democracy, which means that our MPs should represent the electorate, which, as we just touched on, they're, they're so often not doing. Um, if you want, uh, I'll, I'll give you a couple of facts, uh, because at the moment, the, the whole rejoiner remainer lobby, at which, by the way, is very powerful and extremely well-funded by foreign billionaires like, um, well, I, I won't name him, but extremely well-funded. Let's put it that His way. His name doesn't happen to start with George, does it? You, you might say that I couldn't possibly comment. <laughs> I think people will be able to work that out. I, I, I suspect your, your viewers and listeners are pretty bright and, and they'll know who we're talking about. Um, but let me just give you a couple of figures uh, from a report we published uh, just a few days ago. Um, the first thing you need to know, or your viewers need to know, is that prior to the, the EU referendum, the British public was bombarded with propaganda uh, from almost everybody you, you, can, you can think of, from government, uh, even to the Church of England, um, to every major international financial institution. Absolutely everyone. Oh, and Barack Obama. <laughs> everybody said uh, it would be an absolute disaster if we voted to leave. The government and the Treasury in the United Kingdom threatened us with up to 820,000 job losses immediately, just on a vote to leave, not, not after we'd actually left, because that was always going to you know, take a little time, uh, but immediately. And uh, I just thought that your viewers and listeners might be interested in what we published the other day. Payroll employees up by 2.3 million since the referendum. 
Median wages up by 41% since the referendum. Now, you know, we, we don't need to go into all the detail of this. I mean, these are just stark, bald figures. And you compare that with what we were threatened with, which was economic Armageddon. Uh, they called it falling off a cliff. And did we? Did we help? Well, this is we, we see the same thing here. The, the other side don't debate and reason with facts. They reason with emotion. And it's fear. It's always fear-driven. I mean, we saw that in, in COVID. Uh, we saw elements of it during the voice referendum here. They try and hoodwink the public by saying all these terrible things are going to happen if you, you know, vote against these proposals. And it's the, the opposite is the actual answer. Everything is inverted. Yep. Um, and we've got the same issue with COVID. Uh, the truth is now finally coming out over COVID. I am very proud to tell your audience that we were the very first organisation to come out with questions about the response to COVID and lockdowns. And we did so on the 4th of March in 2020, the first organisation to do so. We lost a massive number of our audience, uh, our readership, I, I should say, uh, as a result, because people were indoctrinated by the BBC and others uh, and the government on a nightly basis. Um, I don't know what happened in Australia, but here we had um, two gentlemen that we refer to as Pinky and Perky uh, 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 flanking the Prime Minister. They, one, one was the Chief Scientific Officer, the other one was the Chief Medical Officer. And every single night, the public was bombarded um, with propaganda. We now are starting to get the truth, not from our public inquiry, by the way, which is costing uh, millions and won't report for another two years or something, uh, but we're getting it from medical professionals who are now telling us uh, the effects of, of the various COVID measures in right across the board. I mean, I, I know this particular podcast isn't about that, so I won't say anymore. No, well, I'm glad to hear it because uh, the same thing happened here. Every 11 o'clock in the morning, the state premiers would get on uh, on TV via a press conference. They would have the chief medical officer behind them and they would be trying to scare the population witless, saying, don't go see your grandmother. Uh, you might kill her. And, and I did. I, I didn't go see my grandmother for almost 18 months and eventually she died in the kitchen of a heart attack. So I missed those final uh, months of her life because even though, even though I didn't believe all the uh, COVID propaganda and I was like you by March, 2020, just by viewing the statistics, you could tell that this was a benign uh, disease. And you, you, you know, if you were of a certain age, you would be able to uh, fend it off quite easily. But she was in her 80s, and uh, we did see elderly people suffer uh, a lot more with uh, COVID. So I made the decision to stay away, and uh, that's uh, what happened. So, look, I, I think everyone watching, if you're not following CIB UK and Facts for EU on Twitter, I, I encourage you to do so and also head to the website because it sounds like. Uh, you guys are willing to, as you said, lose members and lose a big uh, chunk of your audience to stand up for your convictions and your beliefs. And 
if only we had more of those people in Parliament. Yeah, um, sadly, uh, we there are some, you know, and I know them, and they are great, um, but they are few, and they are becoming fewer, uh, and. It, 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 there's lots of reasons, I think, behind that, which we can't go into right now. But uh, when it came, came to COVID, uh, it cost us in the pocket, too, because people suddenly started cancelling donations that they were making to us. Oh, and by the way, if any of your um, audience want to make donations, <laughs> go to the website. Please do. We are desperate for more uh, uh, more money to fund yep. what uh, what we're trying to do. You can go down here to the bottom of the page on both sites and uh, and become a is it a subscription or you can also uh, make uh, one offs or, or subscription. You know, three pounds a month. Uh, what's that in Australian dollars? Not much. Um, or uh, you you know, if you can afford more, great. But I think you. You started at the beginning of this broadcast, uh, Stephen, by by referencing the cost of living crisis. Well, we we've got the same issue in the United Kingdom, and it, we understand it's difficult for people. But we think it's a pivotal year this year. Two thousand twenty-four is a pivotal year, certainly in Europe and in the United Kingdom. We're going to have a general election. There's also the European elections coming up in in June. Uh, and uh, we've also, of course, got uh, the U.S. presidential election. Uh, so very interesting year for democracy, I would say. And the more that, that people can fund people like you and people like us, uh, the more we can do, right? Well, if people are willing to stand up and, and push back, everyone's complaining, oh, no one stood up. Well, if you can identify people that did, you need to support them. And it might not be uh, by by funding them. It might be in other ways. Maybe just give them a pat on the back or send them an email and say, yeah. hey, I appreciate everything you've done. Absolutely. And and it could be as simple as just forwarding on a tweet or, or a Facebook post or something like that, anything to get the message out that um, – uh, we were there. Uh, we were the first, and I'm I'm very proud of of us uh, and my team for making that that stand. It's now showing uh, with all the evidence that we were right all along. And um, what can I say? I mean, nobody likes anyone saying, uh, "I told you so." Mm. <laughs> I mean. <laughs> Nobody likes people like that, but we did tell you so. And but I didn't. I didn't know that, and it, I have a tremendous amount of respect for you more so than I did before in hearing that and hearing that you identified it so early and you're willing to. Uh, you mean you lost so much support from it? I mean, uh, I, I always, I always think uh, you can't die with money and you can't die with possessions. The only thing you can die with is your honor. So you need yeah. to be true to yourself. Yeah, well, I'm English, born to rule and sacrifice. <laughs> born to rule and sacrifice. I love that. Uh, now, you mentioned the uh, UK general election coming up. Now, I want to bring up this graph, and unfortunately, I can't zoom in as well as I would have liked, but this is from Politico. Now, 
Back in 2019, the UK general election, as you said, the Conservatives won with an 80-seat majority, uh, that there's 650 seats in the UK Parliament, the House of Commons. Uh, the Conservatives had 365 of them. Labor only had 202 with a 32.1% primary vote. Now, that's what the Labor Party here in Australia got, and they won government with that, so uh, maybe don't read too much into that. But I want to have a look at this graph. Now, as we can see, at the 2019 uh, general election, the Conservatives had 44%. That climbed to 51% in April uh, 2020. But as you can see, it's just been on a steady decline ever since then to the point now where you're looking at a 26% primary vote. Uh, Lee, what, what, what happened? What, I mean, this, this, uh, this election back in 2019, Boris Johnson was flying high. The Conservatives were flying high. Labor were trounced. Now it's a complete reser- uh, reversal, even more so. Yeah. Um, okay, what can I say about this? Uh, we... We had Boris Johnson, who was um, like him or loathe him, but very, very popular, very charismatic prime minister. He was ousted over the uh, so-called Partygate um, scandal, where there were um, supposed parties in checkers during the lockdowns. And uh, the party, basically, the Conservative Party combined to oust him, which they did. Uh, the party membership, uh, note this, not, not the MPs, but the party membership then voted for somebody called Liz Truss to become prime minister. And she is a low-tax, small-state conservative of, of the type that would probably be recognised in Australia, um, to be honest. Uh, very strong on growth on economic growth and getting the the country moving again. Uh, She was then ousted by the blob, as as we call them. Do you have that expression, the blob, in Australia? What is it, the blog? The blob. The blob. It means the establishment. That's a good one, though. I might start using that, the blob. The blob, B-L-O-B. She was ousted. Uh, and replaced without any vote whatsoever by Rishi Sunak. Uh, Quite an extraordinary set of affairs. And that's how we've ended up where we've ended up, because Rishi Sunak is essentially a technocrat. Uh, He would go down very well in Brussels. Well, in fact, he does go down very well in Brussels, because he kind of talks their language. You know, he's a former merchant banker, uh, but... Um, bless him, you know, and no, no disrespect, Rishi, but not the most charismatic man in the world, not exactly a man of the people. Uh, and uh, what's happened is that because of his lack of conviction politics, because of his lack of dealing with the issues that the public care about, his popularity has gone down and down and down. And he's now down at the level uh, where, in fact, uh, the German so-called far-right politician, Alice uh, uh, Weidel, um, is, I think, actually polling more than Rishi Sunak is now. 
One, um, one thing I noticed that was um, very interesting in analysing this data from that election was that the swing to the Tories wasn't that high. It was only 1.2% despite their thumping victory. Now, the swing away from Labor was 7.9%. So that that uh, vote has been distributed to other minor parties. Could it? Could the Conservatives have potentially walked into a trap thinking that they had the whole country behind them when, in fact, maybe it was just that people despised Labor and, and Jeremy Corbyn so much? Most definitely there was an anti-Corbyn vote. There's no question about that. Uh, the country was never going to vote for Corbyn. Um, it, it was... It was a suicide note from the Labour Party, frankly, when they elected Jeremy Corbyn as as their leader. Um, quite ridiculous. Um, going forward uh, from there, we we essentially saw the uh, the British people feeling that there was hope in in um, a Boris Johnson government. We had uh, what uh, your, your, your audience may not be aware of this, but we've got something called the Red Wall in mm-hmm. the UK. Let me just explain it very, very briefly. For, for decades, uh, there were constituencies across the north of the country that never, ever voted Conservative in their lives. Uh, they didn't, their parents didn't, their grandparents didn't, etc. And all of that changed in 2019 with Boris Johnson's get Brexit done message. And suddenly we had this red wall turning blue, which means conservative in the UK. Okay. Um, what's going to happen at the next election? It seems likely, I mean, I, I'm not a pollster, but I read the polls just like you do, Stephen. Um, what seems likely is an electoral wipeout uh, at the election this year. And most of those uh, seats will go from the red wall, so those that are turned from Labour to Conservative, there will also be losses in the South, and they will, be, they will go from Conservative to, heaven help us, the Lib Dems, um, the Liberal Democrats, uh, open borders, uh, oh, don't get me started. Um, uh, probably you, anyway. Is, is there a chance that Boris Johnson could come back? And if he did, would uh, do you think he could pull off a surprise victory or is he basically done now? I don't think he wants to come back. Um, I think he's making too much money. Um, That's what happens. Yeah. But uh, I did go to a conference in October last year in Manchester, and uh, which was organised by the Conservative Democratic Organisation, CDO. And what they're trying to do is to, to bring uh, local party democracy back in, in, into politics. Now, I, I imagine that that is something that would ring true with your audience too, that party members should be able to influence things. And that essentially is what Lord Crubbus, uh, who I consider to be a friend of mine, has has been doing, uh, and uh, David Campbell-Bannerman, in setting up this organisation. 
called CDO, which is all about getting back to grassroots democracy. Well, this brings me to uh, a very important topic, and you and I are part of a, a Zoom, a weekly Zoom group. It's a private group, uh, but uh, there's a lot of members from Australia and the UK in there, and it's, it's been extremely interesting for me to see the overlap between the two countries and the issues that you're facing there in the UK are very similar to the issues that we're facing here in Australia. And I think similar in the Western world, I'm sure Canada and New Zealand and America are facing similar issues. But we had a a discussion a few weeks back where we were focusing on reforming the system of government, saying the system's broken. Uh, What can we do to reform things? It's not working adequately. And uh, I held a different view. I, I was. I said in the beginning that I think our system is very, very good, and uh, you know, the group jumped on me. That's fine. It was. Uh, it's done in a very um, uh, humorous way. But as the conversation progressed, and especially when you were speaking, a light bulb went above my head, and you were making the point that uh, the elected representatives that we have are not, as we uh, as we spoke about before, they're not representing their uh, electorates are not representing their members and we're not choosing the parties are not choosing candidates that uh that the membership wants the membership base wants so it prompted me to ask the question i'll ask the same question to you now is it more of a case that we need to fix the party system more than the actual system itself yeah i i i would agree with that i i i've got no problem uh with our overall system of representative democracy We just have to make sure it is representative. And it currently isn't. And I I think you've got the same problem in Australia. I know other countries where that is most definitely the case. So we have have a comment here from Adam. Uh, He said the major parties aren't raising fresh new politicians through the ranks. It's all about getting the funding from the taxpayer coffers. Yeah, um, I, I think one of the, I think Adam is, is absolutely right. One, one of the problems we've got, how do we attract the best quality candidates? I mean, who would want to be a politician these days with social media the way it is and the attacks that people get? Now, my advice to any politician is don't read social media. Um, we, we have uh, very substantial social media accounts. I can tell you, Stephen, I don't read the comments. Because if I did, I'd probably cut my my wrists. Um, you know, the abuse is just extraordinary. And you made a comment earlier about uh, something to do with how the other side only hurls insults and, and, and they don't have any arguments. They don't have any facts to back them up. Emotion. Emotion yeah. Emotion. Yeah. And, and we have the same issue... Uh, over here in Europe, that emotion is what drives it. And uh, one of the organisations that I chair, Facts for EU, as its name suggests, publishes facts, official facts, every single day. Uh, And either you argue with those facts um, or you don't. But, you know, why send out messages saying... Uh, you know, you're, well, I can't actually repeat some of the messages that we get. But coming back to politicians, um, my advice to any up-and-coming potential politician 
is don't read your Twitter account or your Facebook account because it's pointless. And don't don't listen to your campaign managers and the people behind you. Go out into the streets. Go out. Go into businesses. Go and speak to people in your electorate. See what they want. They'll they'll tell you. They'll be open about what they want. So you need to listen. Yeah, uh, yeah. this whole thing about uh, representative democracy for me is 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 very important. Uh, I can tell you that the politicians that I talk to, they do listen. Uh, and if you look at what they say, you can hear that they listen because they represent the views of their electorates. Unfortunately, we have far too many politicians these days who do not. Hmm. Now, I've put the link uh, in the chat if anyone wants to call in and ask a question. Uh, Please do so if you uh, if you want to ask Lee. Uh, it is six o'clock in the morning where he is, so he's got enough, especially early to do this. So uh, uh, please please call in if you choose. But I just want to touch briefly on Scotland now. Uh, I know we're we're getting towards the uh, end of the interview, but uh, I just want to raise this now. In the Scottish Parliament, the uh, pro independence majority uh, clearly leads the way. Uh, now it's not exactly reflected in. Um, the question of Scotland becoming independent, that's more of a a 50-50 split. But do you see a potential of Scotland uh, removing itself from the UK in the the foreseeable future? No, I don't. Um, All reasonable surveys of Scottish people have shown that, uh, that the answer is no, uh, they won't. The other thing that you're going to see is... Uh, We talked about a a wipeout of the Conservative Party at the general election. It looks like there's going to be a bit of a wipeout of the Scottish National Party uh, at the election too. So the the popularity of that party, and they've been in power for 14 years, essentially what they've done is dragged Scotland down on so many levels, um, economically, educationally, I mean, it used to be the case that Scotland was renowned for its its education system. Not anymore. Uh, it has the highest uh, death rate from drugs in Europe. Uh, there, are, there are so many things that uh, have been mismanaged by that party, and it was sustained in power because it promoted independence and because of our first-past-the-post system, it, it, it got enough to, to stay in power. But we're now learning, for example, that uh, the leader of that party deleted, deliberately deleted all of her WhatsApp messages uh, prior to a public inquiry into COVID. Oh, dear. Um, uh, she and her husband have been investigated by the police. Uh, I'm not alleging it, uh, anything at all, but they've been investigated by the police over financial um, irregularities, shall we say. Um, so uh, I, I suspect what's going to happen in, in I mean, you know, I'm not a pollster, but I suspect what's going to happen in Scotland is that uh, Labour are going to uh, win a lot of seats 
from the SNP. I think the SNP could halve in size, and there's an awful lot of people in the country that would say that would be a good thing because they talk far too much in Parliament for, for, for the proportion of the population they represent. But anyway, um, I am not in favour of uh, dissolving the union. Um, we are my the organisations that I chair are, as you said at the beginning, non-party political. But we do take stances on certain things. So we take a stance on Brexit and on independence and sovereignty. We also take a stance on the Union, the United Kingdom. We strongly believe that we are better off as four nations within the United Kingdom. That's mostly England, then Scotland, uh, then Wales, then Northern Ireland. And I would like to see them all stay together. I think we're stronger together. Now, I can't take, uh, I can't let you go without putting the focus back on Australia. Now, tomorrow is Australia Day here. Uh, Yay! Had, <laughs> yes. Uh, now, we just had a major supermarket and Audi uh, refuse to sell Australian Day merchandise, which I couldn't, I couldn't understand, but okay. it's gotten worse. It's gotten worse. Now the Australian cricket team has decided not to promote Australia Day at the upcoming test match against the West Indies. Our cricket, our cricket captain has come out, and a lot of people say that the cricket, the Australian cricket captain is more important than the Prime Minister. Well, Pat Cummins has come out and said that he supports the date being changed. Uh, the Australian Open is taking a similar view. They're also not going to promote Australia Day. Now... If you listen to the activists, the fingers are being pointed at, at you guys over there in, in Britain uh, for supposedly invading Australia way back when, and that is the reason why they want to change the date of Australia Day and not celebrate it. What do you have to say about all that as a as a Brit? Well, as a Brit, I, I would say that if I were over there, um, I'd probably give a good slap to some of the people you just mentioned. Um, what planet are they on seriously australia day is something that all australians should be able to be happy joyful and celebrate uh it, it, it's a, an absolute nonsense this revisionist history that is going on same is happening in the uk you know we had uh, winston churchill's statue in um in whitehall uh, uh, defaced by by protesters, you know, with red paint. Um, all of this stuff has got to stop. Uh, we've got to stop stop revising history. And for heaven's sake, why can't people be a little bit cheerful? Um, your cricket captain uh, and the others that you mentioned, they get a grip of yourselves, really. Yeah. Um, you know, it's it's a, a joyful day. I will be celebrating Australia Day with you. I can tell you that. Very good. Well, a poll came out recently saying that only one in five of Australians support the change. So uh, the majority, the silent majority, want to continue celebrating Australia Day. It's just this activist class. And just quickly to ask you, I mean, the UK is a unique uh 
position in the Commonwealth because you are the Indigenous population uh, to to uh, the United Kingdom. What are you facing there? I, I, I believe all this is coming from Marxists that just want to tear down the system and attack the system just so they can implement their views, and uh, that's that's just what they do. But what are what are some of the uh, the attacks that you're seeing in the United Kingdom on your culture? Uh, Well, I would say they're probably pretty similar to what you've been experiencing in Australia. Uh, The other issue that I think we all need to be concerned about worldwide are the global institutions, because they have quite significant power, uh, and we've got to stop them. Uh, It's it's that simple. We've got to stop uh, Davos. We've got to stop the United Nations, the World Health Organization, OECD, the IMF, and others. We've got to put them back in their place where they belong. Hmm. And we need to, we need to have uh, whatever. I'm a Democrat, right? So whatever the people want is what the people should get. And what we shouldn't have are overarching international organizations, including, by the way, the EU, which is probably the worst offender, we shouldn't have these international organizations unelected uh, creating policies and creating the world that we all have to suffer under. You said it best, the, the world we have to suffer under. You know, they do say we'll own nothing and be happy, but I don't think anyone believes that. But I think you hit the nail on the head. These uh, outside foreign uh, multinational groups like the UN, uh, like the World Economic Forum, uh, we just need to stop listening to them. And, uh, you know, as we've been saying all along in this interview and go back to elected representatives focusing on their electorates and the issues that are important to their electorate. But before I let you go, I want to ask you, moving forward, for the United Kingdom, uh, what what would you like to see? How how would you like to see the United Kingdom uh, do something on the world stage? Okay, uh, another interesting question. Uh, first and foremost, I, I I would like to see us have a leader that is a genuine leader that represents the people or the majority of the people. Um, So that would be number one. I'd like to see a parliament that does, too. Uh, I would like to see the House of Lords uh, reformed, because at the moment uh, they sadly are not representing the people um, at all. Um, So those would be things that I want. Uh, Then in terms of policies, I would want to see Brexit fully implemented, in the United Kingdom as a whole, and that means Northern Ireland included. Uh, I would like to see us repeal all of the EU laws that we inherited, and there are thousands that are still on our statute books because the government hasn't repealed them, and I'd like to see all of those gone. I would like to see us reach out to our friends in the Commonwealth and the Anglosphere, you know, which includes... Um, the US as well, and once again start to 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 lead intellectually in terms of giving our people hope in in a future. Where do you see the Commonwealth? Do you 
Has it declined? I, I, I can almost guess uh, what the answer might be coming from you, but uh, can it be revived? Where do you see, you know, is it, is it, can it be, uh, is there strength in the Commonwealth? Is there purpose in the Commonwealth or is it a thing of the past? I absolutely think it can be revived. Uh, it just needs um, a little bit of a shake-up. And I don't think we've been, well, we weren't able to be uh, particularly successful on the world stage because our foreign policy was essentially uh, under the EU until we left. Now, what we can do is stand up with our friends, like the Australians, like the Canadians uh, and, and others, you know, the, our American friends too. Uh, and in terms of the Commonwealth, yeah, there are challenges, for sure there are. I mean, you've got India, for example, is, has been cozying up to um, Putin. Um, you know, th- th- there are issues out there. You've got various smaller countries that have bought into this narrative that they're all victims uh, of the UK's occupation. Well, you know, 200 years ago, whatever. Uh, and also, if you look at it, they didn't do that badly out of it. Um, so I think we could reinvigorate the Commonwealth. Can we do it under King Charles III? Uh, there's a question mark over that, I have to say. Because um, he's, he's a bit lovey-dovey, um, is, is Charles uh, but um, could we do it under a future King William? Yeah. And wouldn't he be a, a nice figurehead for the Commonwealth? I think. Um, but, you know, the main thing is whatever institutions we, we decide to continue with, there is an affinity between the British people and the Australian people. And you know what? In my life, that hasn't changed and, uh, you know, I lost um, my dear cousin, an Australian, last year uh, to cancer, sadly, um, who meant a great deal to me. Uh, he and I never had enough time to spend together. But you know what? When, when I uh, was living in London, I mean, goodness knows, there were enough Australians in London to sink a ship. Um, go to World's Court. <laughs> but I loved them all. I absolutely loved them all. And I, uh, you know, if, if we were going to end on something, I'd just say there's great friendship between our countries. Long may that last and long may it grow uh, going forward. Now that we're clear of the European Union, we're independent and we can su- help to to grow your economy, you can help to grow ours. Here, here, I support everything you just said. And uh, to, f- to finish up, you spoke of shaking things up. Now, this is a segment that I would normally do with Adam Zara on our other podcast, The Ex-Candidates, but I think it's fitting uh, that I've got this opportunity for to ask you this now. It's called Build Your Own Fantasy Government. Now, Lee... <laughs> You're in control of the next parliament of the UK and you can choose five or six politicians, former politicians, maybe experts in a certain field. They can be your neighbour, they can be living or dead. Whoever you choose, five or six people to head up the next 
government of the UK. Who oh, would you thank you, mate. Thank you, mate, uh, for throwing that to me <laughs> without <laughs> any warning at all. Um, okay, I would, uh, off the top of my head, right, uh, uh, Nigel Farage, because he's a very popular um, uh, leader, uh, Sir John Redwood, Chancellor of the Exchequer, because the man has a brain the size of the planet. There is nobody who I know who understands economics better than he does. Um, if I could persuade him to come back into politics, um, David Jones, but he's leaving at the next election. And the reason is because he's probably one of the most decent men I know and principled. Hmm. Um, I would, who else would I bring in? Um, I might, you know, there, there would be some younger folk too, like, uh, Robert Jenrick, um, the guy that just resigned as a minister over the Rwanda, um, immigration deal. Um, he's a pretty young chap, about 40, I think. Uh, I say young, um, for me, 40 is young. Uh, so people like that, I, I would say conviction politi politicians are generally my preference and actually the preference of my team, and I think the preference of, of most of the people that write to us, and we're getting a massive postbag, uh, and I, I think that would appeal to them. So it, it would be the people that listen to the public, I would agree with you on the conviction. I, I say it over and over and over again. We need politicians with conviction that will stand up. And even if you disagree with them, the, at least you know where you stand with them and what they believe in and what they put forward. I think that's exactly what we need to go back to. But look, Lee, thank you so much for joining me today. I've really enjoyed this chat. Hopefully, we can I can have you back on uh, closer to the uh, to, to the election, and we can. Uh, See if uh, see if some predictions uh, that we're, we've maybe uh, floated today come true, and, and how the situation is. But uh, it's been a pleasure speaking with you, and uh, I encourage everyone, as we've uh, said throughout the interview, head to CIB UK, uh, follow them on Twitter, follow them, uh, follow their website, also factsforeu.org. Uh, there's plenty of information on there as well. And uh, check out the book, uh, Survivors, uh, by uh, Sir, Sir Christopher. Uh, if you can head to uh, Amazon and pick up the book, I think that would be also uh, – it should be a good read, I think. Definitely a good read. I can recommend. Um, can I just say, Stephen, it's been an absolute pleasure – and, uh, you know, to be able to speak to an Australian audience means a lot to me. And um, uh, finally, happy Australia Day for tomorrow. Yes. And I will be drinking a glass of Australian Shiraz um, and toasting you all.
tomorrow. Well, thank you. Thank, thank you very much for that, Lee. I think we definitely need to uh, celebrate Australia Day despite all the attacks that it's facing at the moment. And I think all the audience, uh, we need to share this interview out if you can. If you know people in the UK, friends or family that you would like to share this interview to, I think it's uh, been very, very interesting. And the overlap between our two countries is what stood out to me the most and the issues that we're facing. So hopefully in the future we can solve some of those issues together uh, uh, whether it be just the two the two nations or part of the Commonwealth or maybe a, a larger uh, entity. But uh, I think it's very important that our countries stick together and we prosper together. So thank you very much, Lee, for coming on. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure, Stephen, and get uh, 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 out to, uh, to <laughs> all, all of your all of your. Well, actually, it, it's not now, is it? It's evening there, is it? I don't know. Uh, it's it's almost the evening. It's it's just almost five thirty in the in the afternoon. Okay. Well, anyway, an absolute pleasure, Stephen. Thank you for inviting me, uh, and uh, thank you to your audience, whoever is left listening. Yep. And uh, thank you everyone for watching. Please check us out next time. And as I said, please share us and follow us and comment on the videos. Uh, it is very important. We love uh, seeing comments and everything. So. I hope you really enjoyed this interview and we'll see you next time. Thank you.